When Richie Wilder Jr. was convicted of the brutal slaying of his ex-wife, Angela, his new wife, Cindy, broke down in tears. He's a good man, she told reporters covering the case. She continued to maintain his innocence until a slip of the tongue to an old friend unraveled everything. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. You'll be so glad that you've joined me for another compelling true crime story where we're going to take a look at physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways that we can find there. This is Season 5, Episode 9. Our book this week is Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota. We've got a fabulous guest, Dr. Mary Foley, the Executive Director at Merriman House Domestic Crisis Center in Paducah, Kentucky. We'll check in with Mary after we investigate this fascinating book. We're also going to talk about ideas for how anyone can be what I like to call a different kind of PI. Not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact. For a lot of us, the term domestic violence makes us think about spouses or intimate partners. But most states have expanded the definition to include former spouses and even parents who share children in common. One scenario I hadn't seen before I reviewed this case was a tag-team partnership of domestic violence. Once Angela Wilder was in the sights of just such a pair, she never stood a chance. In November of 2015, the busy mom of three had recently found out that baby number four was on the way. It was such a happy time. But she did mention to her live-in fiancé, Christopher Jackson, that she felt like someone was watching her. She even thought she'd heard someone rattle their door at night while Christopher was at work. She was right. Before Angela met Christopher, she had been married to Richie Wilder Jr. They'd known each other from their local Mormon church. Not a place you'd expect to meet a man who boasted that he had mafia connections. But Richie was outgoing, handsome, and funny, too. Angela's friends weren't really all that thrilled when she announced that she and Richie were getting married. They'd noticed the bruises and how Angela had become more withdrawn. And it wasn't just physical abuse either. Richie called Angela names, insulted her family, and started multiple affairs. It wasn't too surprising when the marriage ended in divorce. What was surprising was that Richie was the one who filed the paperwork, and he claimed that Angela was the abusive partner. Once the divorce was finalized, Angela moved on with Christopher, and Richie married a woman named Cindy but they were still at each other's throats. When a woman is murdered, especially in such a brutal manner as Angela had been, police are going to look at the men in their lives. Christopher was clearly devastated by Angela's death, and he had a rock-solid alibi captured on video. Richie's alibi was his wife. And then, of course, he hadn't prepared himself to have to explain why police, armed with a search warrant, would find his ex-wife's blood in the truck that he and Cindy owned. Richie didn't lie nearly as well as he thought he did, and he just kept trying to talk his way out of being the police's number one suspect. It didn't work, and he was arrested. He told police that he was now ready to tell them the whole truth. The whole truth came in several different versions, with a new one being concocted every time the physical evidence contradicted him. When his trial was held, it took the jury less than an hour to decide to convict him of Angela's murder. The judge sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole. It seemed like that would be the end of the story. But come on, if that had been the end of the story, we might not even be talking about this case. 
Richie's new wife, Cindy, was struggling to adjust to life as a single mom. She had never thought that Richie would be convicted. That was never part of the plan. That's right. Cindy was in on Angela's murder the whole time. Grab yourself a copy of Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota to get the whole story. Right now, we're going to check in with Dr. Mary Foley from Merriman House. Mary, I'm so excited that you were able to find time to join us today because this is such an important topic. Oh, goodness. I am so happy to be here, and I'm so glad that we connected and were able to chat today. Even though awareness for the issue of domestic violence, I feel, has come a long way over the years. Mm -hmm. I also feel like there's so many ways that it can present itself, like in our case today. And we've still got a lot to learn about those kind of maybe atypical presentations. In your work, what's been the most frustrating thing that you see people still not understanding? Oh, goodness, I would say it's actually two pieces. And that first piece is I still feel like as a society and as just even individuals and individual units and communities, we still have that stereotypical view that I'm going to say stereotypical of what domestic violence is and what it looks like. And so even when I sit across from survivors and, and we're maybe working in a, in a therapy relationship, I'll oftentimes say domestic violence doesn't look like what it looks like on TV. If you're coming to the table today, meaning the patient or, or the listener today, and you have in your mind what you think it looks like on TV, then the problem with that is there are some times when it really does look like that, right? But then there are these other times and most times when it doesn't. And so where we land then is people are always comparing their experience to this Hollywood version of domestic violence. And so they invalidate themselves and their own experience. The other piece to that would be just the victim blaming. You know, if it really was X, Y, Z, then he or she would do these things that I think that people would do if they were real victims. If it was really that bad, she would leave. If it was really, you know, difficult, then she wouldn't return or she wouldn't call or she wouldn't text. I think the most frustrating thing is just continuing to sort of fight that stereotype of what is domestic violence and fight that tendency, I think, in all of us to hold a bias that allows us to victim blame and when you put those two things together, we, we make it near impossible for survivors and, uh, to break free from the, the cycle and for communities to understand what a vicious cycle it in fact is. And I think that brings up other issue that a lot of people really get stuck on. And that's the mm-hmm. whole, well, why didn't they just leave? Mm-hmm. Help us understand why it's so hard to leave. Mm-hmm. Well, the first place I, I love to to ask folks to go with me is, what if we just changed that one word, leave, and changed it to escape? What is in the way of the escape? Because immediately when we acknowledge what the cycle of violence is, which is a a form of power and control that continues to grow and strengthen over an individual, when we use the word escape, we immediately acknowledge that there's something behind the scenes here. There's a force going on here that is in the way of that individual being able to escape to the life that, that we know that they want, that we all want of safety and, and stability and security. So I think to first help people understand, it's just really important to say, gosh, I think we're asking the wrong question. If we ask, why doesn't she, and it's disproportionate to women, so I'm going to say women, we know men are, you know, are certainly victims. 
but why does she stay? Well, if we change it to what's in the way of the escape or what's keeping them from escape, all of a sudden it evokes a much different train of thought, a much different sense of urgency, and it creates a way for us to then have compassion in a very different way for the marathon that we know that is ahead. Because leaving is not an event. It is a process. And we have to understand that it is a process. And it's a process because of what we know to be true about power and control. That is brilliant. And you have just completely changed the way I'm going to word things when I'm talking about this. So thank you so much for that. And of course, in our case today, Angela did leave and had been gone for really a fairly good length of time. But she was still very, very much in danger. So what do we need to be looking at in our own lives, in the lives of people we love to help keep them safe when that threat of violence continues? Well, I think it's really important for us to sort of lay some foundational principles so that all of us and all of those listening with us today are able to just have a basic understanding. First and foremost, domestic violence is about power and control. And it it is a cyclical process that really begins to show a course of conduct over time. We think we've got some good predictors, right, of what make people, what we would say, just at a basic level of risk or moderate level of risk or a high level of risk. The problem with that continuum is that survivors can experience something that from the outside and even experts might say, well, this person is at risk, but it's a low level of risk. But that can change so quickly on that continuum. It's not linear, I think is what I'm trying to say. So we're not always going to see a progression where someone increases in their risk of danger. And then we've got all this time to intervene, right? And so I think I want folks to understand domestic violence is about power and control. That's in the center of our wheel. And then the spokes around that wheel will be the tactics and things that are used to maintain that power and control. Could look like intimidation. So I don't ever punch maybe the victim, but I punch the wall over her head. And in that example, the victim struggles to say that they're in domestic violence because they've never been hit, which refers us back to that stereotype on television. Right. But what we know is that when I hit the wall over her head, the message to her, right, is you could be next. I could do this to you. So what we know is that intimidation right, is piece of what is written into many statutes across the country, that if you have a fear of, you know, fill in the blank, being sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, or seriously harmed, then domestic violence has occurred. So those spokes around that wheel might be intimidation, might mean a threat, a physical injury, might actually be a physical assault, might be controlled financially in a way that's unhealthy and destructive, might mean isolation from family and friends, might mean using children as a weapon, might mean I'm going to disclose secrets that you have, and then you're going to lose the kids if you come forward. So there's a whole gamut, right, of what we might use to exert that power and control. And what we know on the very outer part of that wheel is we'll have physical and sexual violence. So when the abuser perceives that that power and control is being threatened, and these ways inside, these spokes, if you would, are no longer effective, now we may have an incident of physical violence, or now we may have an episode of sexual violence. And so just the way we are as humans, right, we're conditioned for survival. So the moment something like that happens, there's been a threshold crossed that we convinced ourselves would never be crossed, and now it has been crossed. And so now the power and control grip has grown. 
So I think for our listeners to just understand the, those basic principles of what is domestic violence, how does it show up, what does it look like, now we can have that broader conversation about what do we need to be watching for. And what we know from the research literature is individuals who escape abusive relationships are really in danger for as, as much as two years or more after the fact. We also know that when someone escapes an abusive relationship, that is actually the most dangerous time. So we sometimes get that backwards. We think, if I could just get them out, everything will be fine. What we actually know is 75% of suicide, homicide, and very serious assaults occur upon the point of separation. I think we have to understand timing. We have to understand where the individual is in this cycle. And we have to understand that this concept of escape versus leaving is really important if we're going to keep ourselves and those we love safe. I agree 100% with everything you said. And all I would add on to that is I saw in my time as a paralegal in a domestic violence court that a lot of times these abusers don't feel like anybody has the right to speak into that relationship. It's just mm -hmm. between them and their victim. And they mm -hmm. will be bold enough to approach them in the courthouse even when there's a no contact order, these things just don't always register with them. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get those no contact orders, those orders mm -hmm. of protection, whatever they're called in your jurisdiction, because they will help you later on if the police have to respond. It gives them something to work with. Mm -hmm. But don't mm -hmm. feel like that will in and of itself suddenly make this person back off. Exactly. Sometimes we know it can actually make it worse. And so survivors are really good at knowing what they think will bring them the most safety. And so I think we, we want to pair that survivor with an advocate or with friends and family that are knowledgeable about this issue so that we can support them in that decision and also help them to see that whether or not they have the order of protection or they don't, they are at risk. And so doing those things, uh, whatever those things may be, so it may be making sure that we don't share a phone plan where I can be tracked or making sure I've got a good safety plan. I have worked through sort of in my own mind how I would exit, who is knowing where I am and how do I communicate if there's something wrong. So I think it's all of those pieces. Orders of protection are such a critical piece, but they're not the only piece. And for some survivors, they believe that it would make them less safe. And so if that is the case, then how can we equip them to keep them safe while we figure out what the next steps are. Now, I don't want to be picking on churches. I feel like my last few episodes, maybe it has seemed that way. I love the church, love the church, but we're not perfect. And I firmly believe that we can do a much better job of supporting survivors and holding abusers accountable than what a lot of churches are currently doing. We have to be willing to look at the fact that this is happening in our congregations. We don't always want to admit that, but statistically speaking, it is. And I spoke with a woman recently who had been abused by her husband, who was the pastor of their church. Sure. So if we're just a lay person in our church, how can mm -hmm. we work with our leadership to address what's going on right under our noses? Well, I think you bring up such an important point. And again, I'm somebody that likes to think as simply as I can about issues that are very complex. So I think the first place is to get our own guts, if you would, comfortable with being uncomfortable. This is a really complicated issue. And yet it is also very simple in that people attend churches and people are abusers and people are victims. And so if people come to your church, then you have abusers and you have victims. I mean, it's just really that simple. 
people. So now what are we going to do to either make it more difficult to abuse within the church and make it more acceptable to come forward and ask for help? And so I think when we make things bite-sized like that, we think, okay, now I can show up in that space. As a Christian and as a church member, I have to start to ask myself, what are things that I can be looking for? What are ways that survivors can know that they have a safe place here? And so as a victim's advocate and as somebody that's worked with survivors, if I'm really candid, I'm less concerned about what the abuser is going to do, right? Like that's, I, I wouldn't want to be a pastor and have to balance redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and healing and survivors. I'm going to talk over here to the survivors that are listening today. Here's what I would say. I think, first of all, some simple things we can do is talk about it from the pulpit. And that can be as simple as throwing out a statistic or just acknowledging that it happens or maybe discussing how a sacred text is often misused or pulled out of context and is used as a weapon against a survivor. So there are ways that we can set the culture from the pulpit on what we are going to acknowledge and how we're going to honor the fact that our God is a God of justice. He's a defender. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is somebody that fights for the oppressed. And so I, I don't think there's any incongruence there. I think we can do things like having brochures of our local DV provider at the Welcome Center. I think we can do things like participate in awareness months, like October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So can my pastoral staff or can my Sunday school teachers, can we put purple ribbons on? So whether it's a small thing or, or a larger thing, as we begin to talk about these issues, survivors get the message loud and clear. This is somebody that I can talk to. Intimate partner violence is a very shame-based crime, as is sexual assault and child sexual abuse and, and abuse in general. And so we have to take that extra step to remove that cloak of shame and say, listen, we understand this happens. We understand that it is something the church is called to respond to because we are representatives of a God who certainly is capable of handling all the nuance. But what we know is that he's a protector. And so we want to be that safe place as well. I think we have to be willing to have the conversation and then look at tangible ways that we can support survivors. And then there are providers, right, that, that do work with those that are in that abuser role. There's help for them. But I think, I think the church has to be really clear on the front end how they're going to do those, those situations while elevating the safety and, and integrity of the gospel. And the gospel should be the safest message that we preach. Amen and amen to that. And I will go ahead and speak right to the pastors. You brought up resources. I think sometimes in churches, we feel like we have to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. And we step into areas that we really aren't adequately trained or informed to address. So make sure you know who in your area handles these things, is qualified to speak into these things and refer people. Don't mm -hmm. try to handle everything in house. You know, you have Merriman House in your region and there are other places like that. And so make sure you know who can really speak into this issue with authority, with understanding and with compassion. 
think it's so important to providers, right, and to community members on the flip side to take time to foster relationships with their churches. Yes. You know, I think they have concerns that are that are theirs about where I refer and who I endorse and how I support. And so I think sometimes finding those individuals that you can have a conversation with and how can we come together to support survivors. So I absolutely agree that it is on pastors to understand their scope. But I also think it's on us as providers to recognize and validate the very important role of the faith community in healing and resiliency for survivors that have been isolated. They can become a family and an extenuation of a community of care. And so I also think it's on us to look out to our churches and say, you're on the front lines. You're with people in some very vulnerable times. And pastors and church leaders have such an inordinate amount of trust of their parishioners that to be able to say to them, hey, how can I help you? How can I serve your church? How can I help you feel comfortable asking me for help? I think that's a two-way street. And, and sometimes I think we, we don't do enough to make that relationship an easier one to have. That's huge. And I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'll throw out a tip that any church can do, extremely low cost, not hard to do at all. Just have a poster in your ladies' restrooms that has emergency contact information. If she has an especially controlling partner, that might be the only place she's kind of out of his sight. Don't walk up to a woman in the hallway when she's Mm -hmm. right there by her abuser and say, is something wrong? Right. So. Right. I I couldn't agree more. I, I also think we have to be, again, it's that starting simple and sort of zooming out. If abusers are adept and skilled at manipulating and controlling individuals, logic would say they're also very skilled at grooming communities community so, within the church, that community at a workplace, that community you know, in the literal subdivision or community in which someone lives. They're good at that as well. And so I think your point of not, you know, trying to tear apart that facade in the moment is probably the safest thing for the survivor. But to be able to let them know privately, hey, I'm concerned or something seems off or how can we assist is the safest thing to do. Let's talk more specifically about what you're doing at Merriman House, because you really are doing so, so much. You've got emergency housing, counseling, support groups, mental health support. You offer spiritual enrichment programs, transportation, and just so much more that I can't even probably list it all here. So help us really understand and and be able to process why so many services are crucial to being able to support domestic violence survivors as they're trying to build a new life. Goodness, you know, I have been doing nonprofit victim service work since 2005. And at the beginning of my career, I worked with sexual assault and child sexual abuse survivors. I really believed and still do. That's really the underbelly, right? Those sexually based crimes are so tragic and so difficult. When I came to the domestic violence world, if you would, I was shocked at my own level of ignorance to the issue and would have thought that I was someone that actually had some foundation in victim services. And what I quickly realized is domestic violence encompasses sexual assault and child abuse, poverty, mental illness, substance use. We just go on and on and on. And so, so many intersection points with domestic violence that as I began to understand that, then I began to realize, oh my goodness, we can bring people into an emergency shelter, but then we have to work to get them housed. Well, how can we work to get them housed if we don't have a housing team that's connected to housing programs that helps people have you know, a place to live that is safe and secure? 
And then when you just understand trauma and, and what it does and, and what that does to someone's psychological self, spiritual self, mental, emotional, physical, it's like, well, goodness, you know, we need counseling services because counseling is going to be a part of that healing journey. We know from survivors that financial barriers are the number one reason why survivors remain in an abusive relationship. Well, we really can't help people escape if we're not able to assist with their transportation or their childcare bill or their gas bill or the medication that they need. Or maybe I've never been allowed to work or maybe my credit is in really bad disrepair. Well, if we're going to help remove the main barrier, then we've got to have services that address those pieces. And goodness, if we're going to serve women with children, we're serving and children. So there's a secondary victim here. And so how are we going to work to make sure they remain enrolled in school and, and make sure that they have the healing that they need? Because what we know is that children who have been exposed to domestic violence are more likely to be a victim of domestic violence or to be an abuser of domestic violence. So, so how are we going to address that in a way that's safe and helpful? And so I think just coming to the knowledge that 95% of individuals that are in treatment for a substance use disorder have interpersonal violent history. Oh, please say that again. So that, we, that is such a big deal. I want you to repeat that. 95% of individuals who are seeking care, right? It might have been 92. So somewhere between 90 and 95% of individuals who are in treatment for a substance use disorder have an intimate or an interpersonal violent history, such as child abuse, domestic violence, or sexual assault. I've often over the years also seen that substances get introduced in the relationship and then are used as a way to maintain control over the individual. It can be the addiction itself that they can only get to that substance if they're with that individual. Or I have seen it used where the individual has tried a substance. Maybe they, they weren't substance users. They've tried a substance. Maybe it violates their own personal beliefs. Uh, maybe it makes them feel like a bad parent and then it's used as a threat. If, if you leave, I'm going to tell that you've done these things or you use this substance. So substances play a huge part in domestic violence. So one of the reasons why Merriman House is co-located on the same property with a substance abuse treatment facility is because there's an intersection out there. So I think in terms of what does Merriman House do, we are a comprehensive advocacy and support center, just like you described, that understand that continuum of care. And so we want to provide emergency shelter. We want to work with law enforcement. We want to show up in civil courts and criminal courts to be an advocate and help with protective orders. But we also need to make sure that they have access to counseling that their kids are supported, that they're able to be housed and stabilized in their housing. And then this spiritual enrichment piece is actually very unique to Merriman House. There's not other programs in our state that do it. And if you and I were sharing coffee together and nobody else was listening, I would say that I brought to the table such baggage in my own Christian life about abuse and trauma that I realized that that's one of the most difficult places to stand is when you have a crisis of faith in addition to trauma. I think I just intuitively knew that that's a place where people have to heal. It has to be voluntary. It has to be on their time. We are not a faith-based organization. And so we had to honor the state and federal requirements. But as I began to review the research literature, what I, what I saw so clearly, what I knew intuitively, and that's that when individuals have crisis of faith questions like, why would God let this happen? Or how can I get divorced if I'm a Christian, yet this is a really bad experience that I'm in? Or God brought me to this person, so it must be okay. Or you know, fill in the blank, a whole host of just experiences I think that we can have within that Christian realm. 
I just realized, man, if we're going to do this work, this deep work, we at least have to acknowledge that people are physical, they're mental, emotional, and they're spiritual beings, and they have to have an opportunity to heal on all fronts. And so Merriman House really just stands ready to help people heal at their own pace in whatever way we can, in a way that's survivor-led. And so I think that's really what led us to this spiritual enrichment piece was we can't keep ignoring this, right? Some of the deepest work has to be in making peace with God and with our circumstances. And to help further everything you're doing, you have an amazing one-day conference coming up, the Nehemiah Project, where you're educating, you're empowering, you're networking, you're doing all kinds of incredible things. So tell us about that. Well, this is the third year to do the Nehemiah Project. It started just as a training for churches, pastors, lay leaders. It was a faith-focused training to do exactly what you and I talked about earlier, and that's Merriman House doing its part to reach out to the church community and say, hey, we appreciate all you do. We have something to offer. We want to make sure you know what domestic violence is, that it's in your congregation, and, and make sure you're equipped to respond And so we did that for two years based on the story of Nehemiah and the walls are down and our proverbial walls were the walls of the family and the walls of lives around trauma and domestic violence. People are exposed and they're vulnerable. And how can we help shore up those walls of protection, both literally and metaphorically? So this third year training, though, we thought, okay, it takes a lot of workers to rebuild walls. And so this year, we're doing it a little differently. We are starting the morning, and that's going to be targeted toward the faith community specifically. So we're saying to our faith community folks, hey, if you only have half a day on a Saturday, you need to come in the morning, and that's going to be more geared toward you. And so we're going to have Autumn Miles coming. She's a researcher with Lifeway, and she's going to be talking about domestic violence in the church and the prevalence. She's also a survivor. And then we'll move to Pastor Neil Shorey. He's from Chicago, but interestingly, he was Stacy Peterson's pastor. And so if folks don't know that story, we won't get into all of that today, but they can Google that and read that. And she's actually been missing for, for several years. She spoke with him two weeks or so before she went missing. And so this is really his journey and commitment to what he wishes he would have known, what he wishes he would have done, how he felt ill-equipped and carries that today. And so he's going to share with pastors and church leaders that, yeah, this is this is in your church. And here was what happened with me. And, and here's what I, I don't want you to do. <laughs> we'll break for lunch. We'll have an expert panel and, and we're going to invite our faith community folks to stay. But we're going to shift the focus to a judicial advocate, medical police, you know, first responder afternoon. And we'll kick off that with Joe Petito. So Gabby Petito's father. So if you don't know that story, it's been prevalent in the news over the last couple of years. He lost his daughter to domestic violence. He will be speaking. And then we'll move into the nuts and bolts. So we'll have the special prosecutor from the Office of the Attorney General for Kentucky. She is a domestic violence prosecutor. She'll be teaching on prosecuting cases of strangulation. And we'll talk about how to build those cases and signs and what to watch for and risk factors. In Kentucky, strangulation has just been elevated to a felony. So that's really important for those folks. And then at the end of the day, we'll end with Mark Wynn, who is he's the advocate's advocate. You know, I mean, he is, oh, there's just nobody better. (laughs) So if folks haven't heard of him, I would just encourage you to check him out. But he will be talking about training police on dual aggressor. So how how do I know who the aggressor is? So if if there's been circumstances, sometimes law enforcement, they're unclear on what's gone on. And so he'll be training them on the nuances of that. So that's the day. It's free of charge. 
And so we would just encourage folks to come and just to learn that we're all in this together. And it takes all of us doing something to change the tide here of domestic violence. Well, I'm planning on being there. So anybody that's listening, come on out. I'd love to meet you and talk with you. And most importantly, have you hear all these amazing speakers and really be able to take back their wisdom back to your community that Mm. you can be what I call a different kind of PI, not a private investigator, but a person of impact. So how do people register for this or do they need to register? They do need to register. I would say go to www.marymanhouse.org and we'll have a way to link right to the conference registration there. And that Merriman House is M-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N house.org. And so they can click on the Nehemiah Project and register. Now it is free of charge. So we desperately need you to register so we know how much food to have for you. But yeah, they can go there and register. Mary, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us, oh my gosh, so much wisdom, so much practical information, and an opportunity to grow our knowledge by coming to your conference this year. Well, my goodness, it has just been my pleasure. I look forward to talking with you again. And and thank you so much for sharing this space with me on such a difficult but important topic. Very much so. Thank you again. Bye-bye. This week, I want to read a passage from Ephesians. So often, abusive husbands who are part of a faith community will quote Ephesians 22 through 24 about wives submitting to their husbands. Let's talk about what follows, the part about what Scripture says a man's responsibilities in a marital relationship are. This is Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. When I read this, it just so resonated with me that the spouse called to a higher standard of behavior is not the wife, it's the husband. Husbands are called to constantly perform acts of self-sacrificial love for their wives in the very ideal of Christ himself. They don't use scripture to subjugate us but to cleanse us. Our imperfections are lovingly washed away to make us holy. Ladies, who wouldn't want to follow a leader like that? That is true love. Don't settle for the Hollywood version of it. Each and every one of you deserves an earthly love who is striving to love this way. And even if you don't have a man in your life who's willing and able to humble himself in submission to this scripture right now, you do have someone who loves you and serves you like this. Jesus, you are beautiful and worthy to him just as you are in this moment. I want to hear what you thought of this episode. So please send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or send me a message on social media. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. The music is by Neocortex and artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.